Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we would also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. When the death, uh, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Well, please have that on your lap, because I would love to share with you a fear that I have, and it is of uh, amnesia. Amnesia. I fear amnesia. I fear not knowing who I am. It must be a terrible and a scary thing for someone who knew who they were, who knew their address, who knew their postcode, who knew their mobile phone number, who knew what they used to do to, because of an accident or an illness, to have lost their memory, to forget their identity, to forget their past, to be uncertain of their present and haven't got a clue about their future. To have amnesia because of whatever reason temporarily is bad enough, whether you bump your head because you fall off your bicycle, something like that, and you lose your memory for a short amount of time and then you regain it, that's scary. But to lose your memory for months or years, that must be terrifying. To forget who you are, to forget your background. Well, this is Paul's concern as we journey into chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8, continue that process Paul does not want the Christians in Rome to have spiritual amnesia. He wants them to know who they are with confidence. He wants them to know what's uh, on their passport spiritually without having to look at it. 
He wants them to be convinced and steady on their past uh, because of Jesus. He wants them to be convicted and sure about their future because of Jesus. And that's what's happening in chapters 5 and 6. Paul's laying out, because of the gospel, chapters 1 through 5, this is the difference that it should make in your life. This is who you are in Jesus. This is who you are becoming in Jesus. This is the power that is available in Jesus for real and lasting change to happen in your life. It will be hard, but it's possible. It's not in doubt because of the power of God and the power of the gospel. But in verses 1 and in verse 15 of chapter 6, a question comes up. It's there twice in the passage, so we need to pay attention to it. So what? If the gospel is unique, if the good news about Jesus is unique, that unlike any other religion in the world, Christianity, knowing Jesus, is not achieved, it's received. That's the main difference between Christianity and any other religion. It's a received religion by grace. If you receive justification with God by grace through faith in Jesus' blood on the cross, chapters 1 through 5, then so what? So verse 1 and verse 15 says, if it's all about grace, why can't we just go on living our same lives? If it's all of grace, then why don't we just keep on sinning so that we get more grace? And Paul says, you're off your rocker. That's my translation. You're, uh, you're not thinking clearly. You haven't grasped it. If you grasp the gospel, it's real change to who you are. Your identity video, your identity changes, your status changes, you're part of a new family. You died in Jesus, you're raised in Jesus. You're not part of the new, uh, old humanity, you're part of the new humanity. You're not under Adam, chapter 5, you're under Jesus, chapter 5. And so this question of the life that Jesus offers is so important. It's not a matter of you've got a new status but you don't change. Part of understanding the status and identity that you have, avoiding spiritual amnesia, means... Real change is possible, but it's hard. And these three principles that come up from this passage, there is a lot that could be said, but here's the three principles about the radical change that there should be seen in every Christian. Three words, as normal. Slavery, unity, identity. Slavery, unity, and identity. To get the power of God in your life, you have to see, first of all, what you were. You need to recognize your spiritual slavery. Recognize your spiritual slavery. Look at verses 15 and 16. The second time the same question is asked. What shall we say that grace may abound? We're not under law, but we're under grace. No, we shouldn't sin more. What does he say? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're a slave to someone. As Bob Dylan says, everybody's got to serve somebody. And that really explains this passage. You are a slave to someone or something. Verse 16 is not as shocking to the original readers, perhaps as it is to us. It says, offer yourself as slaves. And if you're like me, the image that comes up is of a white person um, being served by a black person. The modern understanding of slavery very often is black 
versus white. It could be South Africa, it could be America, 100 years ago, civil rights movement. That's our modern understanding of slavery. That is very, very far removed from slavery in the New Testament. Let me explain. To Paul's original hearers, slavery was not necessarily a negative connotation. Imagine you owned a vast amount of money to someone and there's no way that you could pay it back with your checkbook because they weren't invented yet. There's no way you could pay it back in the first century quickly. So what you thought you could do is to sell yourself to the person to whom you owe lots of money. You, you sell yourself into slavery for a season of your life, five years, ten years. And during that time you would live with them, they would give you food and board and lodging, you would work hard for them. But at the end of that period of time, five, ten years, you would have paid your debt. You were a slave to them. You were a servant to them. You were bond servants. They were your masters. They had control and power and influence over your, your life. They owned you, but only for five, ten years until the price had been paid. And Paul takes that, verse 16, and says the same thing is true of you spiritually. Who are you serving? You're all serving someone. Verse 16 says, there are only two types of people in the world. We serve God, absolutely, unconditionally, joyfully. There is freedom in his service. There is delight. Or, you're a slave to something else. There's no third category. Everybody serves somebody. That's Paul's case. Everybody lives for something. Everybody finds significance somewhere. It could be career, it could be family, it could be money, it could be personal independence, it could be a, a political cause that controls your priorities and finances and thought processes. Someone or something that has power and influence over you. You're mastered by it. But then Paul says, verse 12, here's what you don't seem to get. You grasp first century Christians that everybody serves something, but here's what you don't seem to understand, verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You might understand first century Christians that you serve somebody, but here's something you don't seem to get. Don't let sin reign over you. This is a you serve something and it controls you, but you're not making the link. You've got to serve something, but that will have an undue influence over you, negatively. And so Paul in verse 12 says, do not let sin reign over you. You obey something, not just for a short period of time, it has control over you. And in this sentence, verse 12, we meet our old friend, Epithumia. <coughs> Epithumia is two words that are put together. Thumia is the word for desire and passion. Uh, epi is the over-controlling desire or passion. So you can have good desires for good things. But then if you put the word epi like a, an epicenter of a uh, thunderstorm, it's a strong, over overarching, overpowering desire so that a good thing can become a bad thing. A good thing, when it becomes an epi thing, becomes a, a ruling, controlling thing. And that's what Paul's saying. Everybody serves something or someone, but be careful if in serving something it becomes a controlling thing, an epi thing. A good thing that you can be passionate about in your life, your kids, your family, 
having a good work ethic, that's a good thing, an important thing. It can become an epi thing, and then a good thing becomes a bad thing. That's what he's saying. There are good things in your life that's become an ultimate thing, so that you have to have them, whether it's technology, whether it's success, whether it's a certain bank balance, so that you feel safe and secure. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it's an epi thing. Verse 12. And let me give you three tests for epi things, not an epi pen, but do you resonate with any three of these or any one of these epi things? Take anger. Is anger an appropriate thing or an epi thing for you? If something blocks you getting a good thing, you get angry. That's appropriate. So there I was an Audi yesterday afternoon, a little bit of anger came up because I was going for the till, someone cut in on me. I got appropriately angry because angry, I'm very good at self-justification. But just imagine if I became epi-angry. So it wasn't just a cut in and me mumbling under my breath. What about if I wanted to actually kill them physically? Now that would be slightly out of whack. Yeah? What about if I just launched into blue-coloured language? I just went off on one. I just saw the red mist descended and I just exploded verbally and then physically as well. That would reveal to me that there's an issue in my heart. Not that maybe I'm just not getting enough sleep, but if you blow up that thing, well, that's become an epi thing to me. A little bit of time saving has become so important to me that I just exploded verbally, physically, of someone who cut in on me, rightly or wrongly. But are you having trouble forgiving anyone? If you're holding on to anger about someone or something, that can reveal to you that anger, appropriate anger, can become epi-anger if you're having trouble forgiving someone. Anger can be an epi-thing. What about fear? Fear can become epi as well. If something good, if your family is threatened, you want to protect them. That's an appropriate fear response. But what about if it becomes an ultimate and epi thing? What about if you are so fearful that you're paralyzed by fear? Anxiety stops you sleeping. Cold sweats become part of your normal existence. You can't control your thought presses anymore, processes anymore. That means fear goes from being a normal response to an epi thing, just like anger, do you see? Is there something that makes you, or someone that makes you afraid? Something that's controlling you, something that's enslaving you. Fear is becoming epi, it's becoming big. So you've got anger, you've got fear. What about sadness? Sadness is a third diagnostic question. If you lose something, then that's a good appropriate response is sadness. You lose a dog. Um, you love them, they've been around your house for years, they die. The appropriate response is sadness and grief. And it takes you a long time to get over it. But if something you hold on to is an ultimate thing, then actually it makes you want to throw you off a bridge because your life isn't worth living anymore. That reveals to you that whatever the thing was or the person was, it's become an epi, a controlling thing. Now each one of us is spiritually different. But Paul, verse 12, verse 15, 16 is saying this. Don't let anything become a ruling thing in your life. Is there an epicenter in your heart, in your spiritual experience that is not God-shaped? If there's anything or anyone that is an epicenter for you, that you would die if it ceased, that, or you'd want to die if it came to an end, if you were afraid of it, if you were sad because of it, epi-sad, epi-fearful, epi-angry, then that shows that actually you're still in spiritual slavery. 
everybody's got to serve someone. Here's the second thing, though. If that's the reality check, here's the second thing. Realize, realize the scope of your unity with Jesus. Realize the scope of your unity with Jesus. If all of us is prone to slavery and bondage, here is the source of power in which you can change. And it's the gospel once again. Verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6 are the centre of this chapter. They're the centre of this section. You could argue they're the centre of the book. Don't you know that all of us were baptised into Christ Jesus and were baptised into his death? Verse 5. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. This idea of baptism is similar to um, commitment and a wedding. So you can be dating someone, but there's a sign that all bets are off when you get married. It's the same in the Christian life. It's the same when you've become a Christian, you show your commitment to live for Jesus. New life has begun in your heart, but baptism is like the wedding ring. It's like to say, actually, all bets are off, I'm following Jesus now. It's It's the wedding ring of the Christian life. That's baptism. And here, Paul is saying, every Christian, verses 3 to 5, has been united with Jesus in his death. It's like we've been baptised with him. We've died with him, but we've also been raised with him. And this is the wonderful doctrine of unity with God, unity with Christ. This word, uh, united, verse 5, verse 3, is the idea of uh, engrafting. It's this great kind of a Monty Don Gardner's World Friday night, yes I do watch it, where he puts a little notch into an apple tree and he whacks in a branch and binds it up and then a year later it's part of the apple tree. It's growing in its own strength. You've got a root for a rose and you put a notch in the root and you put in another, it's engrafting. New life is received from something else. That's the image here. We've been, every Christian has been, as it were, in cased with, enveloped with, engrafted into Jesus. Verse 4, we've been buried with him. Verse 5, we've been raised with him. This is a huge doctrine. So one illustration to begin to make the point. There's a very rich lady. She's worked jolly hard in her career. She's made an absolute pile of money. And then in her 40s, she finds the love of her life and she gets married to a a working-class guy who's a plumber. They hit it off, but the minute that they are married, all of her wealth becomes his. Now, how is that possible? She did all the hard work. She put in all the hours. He was working hard in his career as a plumber, but he was never going to really make loads of money. She made millions. But through the legal union of marriage, all her wealth is now shared with him. See how it works? How are we united to Christ so that all his resources and all his wealth becomes ours? Through the legal union of becoming a Christian. Through the gospel. Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father. Who was there? The Prime Minister. Who was there? The conquering general to say, come and have the seat of honour. We are with him, says the gospel. We are united with Jesus Christ. We are eternally safe and secure. Everything that the Father looks on Jesus and delights and dotes on him and enjoys him and is satisfied in him is now ours because of the gospel. His past is our past. His future is our future. 
Everything that is legally true of Jesus is now true of us. This is too remarkable to communicate well. But everything that is legally true of Jesus is now true of us. So, all the train wreck that is my past, all the mistakes and guilt that you remember, that is brought to your attention, friends, you are now not designated by God because of your past. You are now treated because of Jesus as if Christ's past is your past and Christ's future is your future. You're in him. God looks on you if you're a Christian and sees Jesus. He sees his perfect life and righteousness. He sees his eternal uh, satisfaction of the cross and resurrection and the ascension. We're in him. Christ looks on you and does not see sin. He sees, he sees his son and he's satisfied. That's the first thing. We're united to Christ's past. Verse 5, we'll certainly be united in his resurrection. It doesn't say conditionally. It doesn't say maybe. It says, verse 5, we will certainly be united in his resurrection. It's not just a past and a clean slate. Everything that God will do in Jesus Christ would include us. When people become Christians, they think, and I thought, it'll be great, I'll get uh, morally improved. I'll be like a pebble that gets kind of polished up. I'll be like a piece of brass that gets shiny. Jesus will improve my life somewhat. Jesus will fulfill my ambitions somewhat. Our uh, estimations of what Jesus Christ will give us when we become Christians is so small. What God is doing through Jesus is cosmic in its scope. And it's not that Jesus fulfills our ambitions. God, for his glory, takes people like me and people like you and we become part of his plan in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6 says, in Jesus we will judge angels. We're going to rule the uh, cosmos with our cosmic space hoppers, so to speak. And we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus. It's not a small future, it's a huge cosmic future that God will renew the cosmos in Jesus. Sin will be a thing of the past. The world will be renewed through a word of creative power. The new heavens and the new earth, I am part of that. And so are you, Christian friends. Because we've been united with Jesus, it's not just about the past. It's a huge cosmic scope for the future. You almost look unimpressed. It's something that should be enjoyed. It's something that should be marvelled at. It's something that is amazingly satisfying when you see it, that we are taken up and we're made part of that huge cosmic global plan. Because that is what pleases God to do in Jesus. Not about small ambitions. It's cosmic. It's about slavery and it's about understanding the scope of what Jesus has done because we're united to him. But then it's about identity. Thirdly, live out daily your new identity. This is the big problem. We have spiritual amnesia and Paul doesn't want us to have that. So look at verse 6 with me, right in the centre of this passage. We know verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Our old self has been crucified with Jesus, has died. New life has been given to us in Jesus. You're either uh, 
under the old head, the representative head of Adam, or you're under the new representative head of Jesus. That's the second half of chapter 5. And Paul is saying, you have died. Believe that, that you have died, but you have been raised with Jesus spiritually so that you have new life. You're a new person. You have a new identity. Your passport spiritually has a new birth place. The old has gone, the new has come. Death has ended, life has begun. And then he says, so that, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now that doesn't mean that our physical body is sinful. That's not what he's saying. Paul is using the word body as a way of talking away we live in the world. It's motivationally, it's actions, it's decisions. And he's saying, in Christ you've got a new identity, so live it understand it, grasp it, and then act it out. Who are you serving? Verse 6. And then down to verse 11. Though the identity that we have is the secret to mastering, to putting sin to death, it doesn't happen automatically. It's a bit like a, a weapon that needs to be deployed. You've taken a delivery of a new, uh, like the uh, Royal Air Force did at the start of the week, I think. I think it's called an F-35. It's a new Top Gun-esque um, fighter pilot, uh, or fighter plane, rather. Um, but it has weaponry underneath, but that will never be used unless a button is pressed. Here, Paul is saying, you have spiritual uh, nukes that can be used to defeat sin. It's an issue of identity, but it doesn't happen automatically. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Remember what happened in Jesus, you died. Remember what happened in Jesus, you were brought to new life. You have to remind yourself of who you are. You have all the resources you need in Jesus to be transformed. So, verse 12, therefore, why is it there? Because of verse 11. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, it's saying, you've got all the resources you need. Don't let sin come back and whisper in your ear that you are still dead. You were dead, but now you're alive. You have everything you need in Jesus. Deploy the weapons of your new identity. It does not happen automatically. But here are some real questions that should come up now, okay? Well, how does it work? How does that work? My favourite example of this is St. Augustine. St. Augustine, to put it mildly, before he was a Christian, had a, a very strong sexual appetite. He had a big problem with sexual self-control before he became a Christian. Uh, and he tells a story in his uh, autobiography of what happened after he became a Christian. He was walking down the street and a, an old mistress came along and wanted to get his attention. Wanted to kind of drag him off and have a, a fling with him that would take not just a couple of hours, it would take days. She came after him and she said, I want you to come with me. Kind of, you know, I want you to come with me now. She was uh, attractive to him. She had been attached to him. And very kindly, he says, no. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Nice to see you, but no. 
She thought, aha, uh -huh, maybe he doesn't recognise who I am. I'm going to try again because I'd like to be with him. Maybe he didn't recognise me. So she turned to him and said, Augustine, it is I, in a non-masculine voice. And uh, Augustine turned and smiled at her, and he said this, yes, I know who you are, but it's not I. It's me, Augustine, she said, yes, I know, but it's not me. Augustine said, I said to this lady, I've changed. I might look the same on the outside, you look the same. Things happen in the past, but I'm not me anymore. I've got a new identity. I used to be that kind of person. I was driven. You had control over me. Sexuality had a control over me. It was the thing I lived for. But now I've changed. I'm under new ownership. I need to remind myself of who I am. Now, you can fill in the blank. It may not be sexual appetite, but it will be something else. Everybody's got to serve somebody. And friends, does your new identity in Jesus, if you're a Christian, are you able to say that to sin? Yes, that used to tempt me and attract me, but now I'm living for Jesus. That's not who I am anymore. I've been forgiven at the cross and I'm living a new life. Are you living out your new identity? Are you alive? Or are you still tricked to thinking that you are dead? You died in Christ, but you were raised in Christ. That's how it works. Augustine, it's me. Yes, I know, but it's not me. I've changed. That's how it works, putting sin to death in your life, verse 11 to verse 12, by saying, that was me, but that's not me anymore. It can be anything. It could be family, it could be career, it could be booze, it could be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But that's not me anymore. I've become a new person in Jesus. That's how it works, practically. Here's the second question. If that's what it's like to live out the Christian life in part, why does it take so long to be changed and to be transformed? Because a lot of people that you would know who've become Christians, who've received Jesus, who understand the gospel, who have this new identity, but years and years and years go by and not a lot of change seems to happen. Why does change take so long? Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a long series on the book of Romans. He preached a long series on Romans chapter 6. And he used this wonderful illustration that I want to share with you about why it takes so long. It's from the imagery of slavery. And go back with me a hundred years to the south of America, to blacks and whites, to a people that were uh, under the heel of white people for generations. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I want you to imagine that there is an enslaved group of people, cotton pickers, under the rule and regime of someone who owns the plantation. And for years they can do anything they want, the ruler of the plantation. They can get the, uh, the black people to work really hard for them. They can pay them very small wages, if anything. They can do terrible things and no one will question how they treat them or mistreat them. Um, and if the black people were to answer back to the white people, then they could even have them killed. That's the status quo. But just imagine, a new rule was passed, says Lloyd-Jones, or a new king was on the throne, or a new president arrived, and said, I'm going to do away with slavery. I'm going to rip it up. It's illegal. And I'm going to post police, impartial police, on every corner of every street. 
This is never going to happen again. Just imagine that change was going to occur in society. Lloyd-Jones says, that's a good picture of what happens in the Christian life. But change doesn't happen overnight. So you would still have black people who are now free. But when they see a white person, they would still be struggling with the past. They wouldn't know the freedom that is theirs. They wouldn't be able to stand up for themselves. They'd still be tempted to live under the rule of the white people, even though they were now equal in society. They would still be oppressed. They'd still be tempted to do what they are told, to go here, to go there, to fetch this and to fetch that. The, uh, the oppressive white people who had the power and misused it, although that's now been misplaced and replaced, it still would feel to the black people as if they had to do what they say. Their status has changed, said Lloyd-Jones. They are truly free. But the people who had black-coloured skin, they needed to grasp it for themselves. And Lloyd-Jones says that is the truth of the gospel. Christians, you've been set free. But so often you forget your new identity and your new status, so you're tempted to live like you used to. You're tempted to live under the power and authority of old masters under whose grip you lived for so long. You're tempted to remain a slave. And he ends this illustration by saying this. Every Christian in this room is in that condition. It's the only reason you do anything wrong. Because we have epi-fears of anger, we have epi-fears of fear, epi-fears of discouragement and lots of other things. Everybody's got to serve somebody, but you died in Christ, but now you are raised in Christ and you live in Christ. You need to know who you are. Here's the third thing. If it's how does it work, why does it take so long, then why is it so hard? This goes into chapter 7 for next time. Why is it so hard? Verse 17 says this, But thanks be to God, you wholeheartedly obeyed the former teaching to which you were entrusted. That's talking about the gospel. That's talking about chapters 1 to 5 where Paul has explained the gospel. And Paul is saying this, look, real change does not happen when you go and have 10 weeks with a counsellor. That can be really helpful. Real change doesn't happen when you go and spend an hour with a pastor. That can or cannot be helpful, depending on who the pastor is. But friends... Here's the secret for change. It's the gospel, and it's not believing the lie anymore. What do I mean? The lie in our hearts is, if we come under the loving rule of King Jesus, fun will end. It's the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. First of all, you remember the lie that came? If you entrust yourself to God, if you live with God as number one, if he's the ruler of your life, if you live as bond servants to him under new ownership, your freedom will be cramped forever. Don't trust him. Follow yourselves. Make yourselves rule makers. And all of us believe that lie. That lie came into our hearts and it's still there. That's why people don't become Christians. Some of the reasons. Because we believe the lie. We think that actually if we follow Jesus... If we make God number one, we'll be enslaved. It will cramp our style, and we can have more fun without him. And the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says to know God is to know true freedom. To know God is to know joy, to know forgiveness, to know security. To know him is to know the reason that we were made. 
God is the most loving master we can ever have. He's our king, he's our captain, he's our friend. And he doesn't stand far off. What does this God do? Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself and he became a servant. That's what this table is about. Mark 10.45 says, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many people. John chapter 13 describes how Jesus got down and dirty and washed his disciples' feet before he went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Friends, our God is not a slave master that stands far off and says, do this or do that. No other master will serve you. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ is revealed as the only master who does and who did and who continues to do so. He denied himself everything. He laid aside all his infirmities. He laid aside all of his infinities. And he purchased us for himself. That's the gospel. Now, why wouldn't you want to serve him? Why would you be tempted to continue to serve someone else? Friends, let me remind you, he is the only master who will give himself for you. And as the older book of Common Service says, in his service alone is perfect freedom. Why don't you serve him? Let's pray.